It is a privilege once again to be able to speak the words of God to his assembled people. I'll ask you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Sarah's giving me a smirk because this is what I preached this morning. Uh, we bring you greetings from the church in Weatherford, Oklahoma. Got to fellowship with those good folks this morning and uh, the fellowship of believers all across the world is a sweet and beautiful thing. Romans chapter 5, of course, if we're coming to Romans chapter 5, it assumes that we've done what? That we've read 1, 2, 3, and 4 to get us there. And, and in Romans chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, Paul will explain the gospel, how it is that God has saved us. And if we, if we remember some of those words and some of those phrases that, that we know, that, that we know not only by memory, but we know because they ring with gospel truth, we remember things like, uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God because, because what is it? It is his power to save everyone who believes. And, and what do we find in the gospel? Therein is revealed a, there's righteousness. And it is written, and he quotes from the book of Habakkuk, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. And he will spend in the next couple of chapters making his case what it really means for sinful man to be justified in the eyes of a, of a holy and, and competent God, a God who knows exactly what he's doing. Nothing is, is getting by God, but yet he is able to forgive us and the language that's used there is he's able to justify us or to make us righteous. And he looks at, at Abraham in the Old Testament. And, and God sees Abraham and, and sees his faith. And what does God do with Abraham's faith? He credits it to him as righteousness. We remember these, these great pictures of, of faith. And then a few paragraphs later, he'll look at David and he'll say David was saved the same way that God saw his faith. Amidst all the imperfections of his life, God saw his faith and he credited his faith as righteousness. And the argument goes something like this, that if God saves Abraham before the law by his faith, and if he saves David under the law by his faith, then do you suppose it's possible that he will save us the very same way? According to his promises and his faithfulness and his goodness, he sees the faith and trust that we put in him, and he says, you are mine. And he deals with the sin, he deals with all of those things that separate us from himself and from his holiness and his purity, he deals with all of those things through the work of Jesus the Christ. And he deals with them fully. He leaves no stone unturned. He leaves no sin lurking in some back corner or, or swept under a rug somewhere. When God deals with our sin, He deals with it in its entirety. And there is nothing left to haunt us. There is nothing left to come back and get us. So, so He's he said all of those things and many more by the time we get to chapter 5. And He begins this way. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. So he takes for granted that, that position that we have, justified, and that is, that is some of the forensic, some of the courtroom language that Paul uses in the book of Romans, uh, basically would, would present the scene this way. You stand before God in judgment, however you imagine that, that unfolding and taking place, but as you and I are called to answer for our life, 
Can we say innocent? Can we say that one? That won't really work, will it? That would be a lie, and lying is a sin, and so we'd be caught up in that. Can we say guilty? Well, that would be true, but, but that's, that doesn't get us anywhere. That, that's, it's a true statement, but it's a horrible statement and an indictment against us. And there's, there's plenty of evidence to convict. And so what do we say in front of God? Jesus. We plead Jesus. We say, look, look, look upon him instead of me, his sacrifice that, that takes away my sin. And so God accepts that, and he takes care of our sin in the sacrifice of Jesus, in the love that he displays in Jesus and in the unfolding of all that gospel plan. And having been justified, not innocent, definitely not guilty, but the sin having been punished in Jesus and therefore there's nothing for God to punish in us. Having been justified, having accepted Jesus on our behalf, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is not just a relationship where I'm not yelling and screaming at you. It's not just the, the relationship of, I'm, well, I'm not hitting you. You know, sometimes we tell the boys, stop fussing at each other. And, okay. And they hit each other as they're walking away from each other. That's not peace. I promise you. Although North and South Korea have, have some cooperation in the Olympic Games that are going on right now, if you were to go to that border between the two countries what's it look like there the guns are still pointed from the south to the north and the north to the south as they don't trust each other and they're not about to give up the opportunity to to start something or to defend against something because they're not really at peace peace is more than the absence of hostility peace is a relationship where where the parties can relax where the parties can enjoy each other's presence. And so it says something about us and God when our relationship is described as as peaceful. That is, we are in the very presence of God, having been justified, that, that being taken for granted at this point in the book, but having been justified, we are at peace. That means we belong in the presence of God. It's not that we're in his presence and he holds his nose and says, yeah, I tolerate you. But God actually wants us there and says, you belong in my presence and you are part of my family and I welcome you close to my heart. And you and I can feel welcome and at home in the presence of God. Do you remember Isaiah in chapter 6 of his book as he enters the presence of God? How does he feel to begin with? Woe is me. I, I, am, I, I don't belong. I am so, so filthy and contaminated because of the sin that has, has been part of my life. And God cleanses him. Once he's been cleansed, does he fit? He belongs there. That's where he ought to be. And then God can use him and send him out to speak for, for himself. The point is this that you and I have peace with God. He doesn't just barely tolerate us, but he says, you belong with me. It is truly a tragedy when anyone who has been born into God's family, made, made alive again in the kingdom of God, 
to feel like he doesn't belong there and, and even to grow weak in his faith to the point that he would walk away or that he would grow weak to the point of being ineffective in his faith because he's, he's not really sure. Has he really pulled away from sin? Has he really been separated from sin? Is all this gospel stuff really as good as the Bible says it is? Well, first, I'm, probably, I'm convinced that we probably aren't as familiar with how good God says it really is. And then sometimes because of our own weakness, we begin to doubt God's good promises and the completeness with which he has forgiven our sins and justified us and says because of the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus, you and I are really at peace. How we see God and whether we can appreciate being at peace with him will determine how our life, our Christian life, unfolds. One of terror and one of being scared of God or one of living fruitfully in his presence and in his service. Uh, when I was 11, we moved to Russia. The story gets better because we moved to Russia from Hawaii. Think about that for a second. Most people get sent to, we lived in Siberia. It wasn't just Russia. Most people get sent there. Daddy chose to move us there uh, to work as missionaries. And as you are, are getting acclimated to, to Russia and seeing what's there, of course, you have to go and do the tourist thing, and you see the insides of some of those great Russian church buildings. Uh, they have the big onion domes. Uh, you go in those, and there's, there's icons, and there's pictures, and there's all sorts of, of visuals of, of Bible stories and, and people from their faith and background. But, but you look up in the ceilings of those great onion domes, and there's usually biblical scenes depicted. And, and over here, you see a guy coming down a mountain, and he's got two big pieces of rock. That's Moses. Check. If you over here, here's a guy coming off a boat, and there's all sorts of animals behind him. I bet that's Noah. And you, you go through, and you, if you've paid attention in Bible class growing up, you know most of these pictures. And then at the, uh, at the far end, there's a, a very, I'll, I'll say a very Zeus-like figure, you know, big, brawny, older guy with long, flowing, curly beard, and he's just got an angry scowl on his face. And he, he's, he's holding a baby in his hand, and it's, I, I don't remember that story. And so you ask the people there who, who are to explain the iconography, and they say, well, that's God. And, and he's angry because baby Jesus won't stop crying. And you scratch your head and you wonder, the artist who painted that, what was his picture of God that he committed to that depiction? What is our picture of God? Do we, do we live fearful? You know, we... We sing that song, or we teach our kids to sing the song, Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do, and, and eyes, what you see, feet, where you go. And for some people, that's a downright creepy and terrifying song. Because they, I, I don't know that I want God looking at everything that I do. Or you, there's the, that's, we don't sing it much anymore, but you remember the old song, there, There's an all-seeing eye watching you? For the Christian who is at peace with God, God. There is nothing terrifying in the idea that God knows what I'm doing and knows the condition of my heart and knows me inside and out. 
for the Christian who can appreciate that he is truly at peace with God, having been justified, therefore being at peace, it in fact is comforting to, to know and to rest solidly on this truth that God knows everything about me and he still loves me. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so I ask tonight, and I think this is a lot of the theological underpinning of this whole chapter, where do you and I take our stand? As we, as we look at our life and, and Christian life before God, what is our solid foundation? We sang a great song, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. That's, that's fantastic, and that's, that's gospel truth. This is just another way of saying that same thing. I take my stand in God's grace. Not just once upon a time I took my stand on His grace, but currently this is where I stand as a Christian Somewhere along the line, somebody got the idea that, that yes, God's grace is good, it's full, that, that all of the sins that I committed, God washed them away in baptism, and I rose to new life, and I have, I have a brand new start, and then the moment I made my first sin after I came up out of the waters of baptism, I got another mark on that chalkboard. That, that now that I'm a Christian, God has added even more laws to what I have to do. Now I have to go to church. Now I have to smile. Now I have to have the right heart about things. This is even harder to live. And a lot of people are crushed under that weight. Anyone would be crushed under the weight of trying to live up to the perfection of Jesus, wouldn't they? Because none of us could do that. He says we take our stand in the grace of God. Not that grace only took us from, from birth to baptism and then God dropped us off and said you're on your own now. But if grace was anything to us before baptism, before we became a Christian, it's everything to us now as well. And it is the only sure foundation upon which we can stand and, and in which we can live this life with God, this Christian life. We have uh, obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And he'll talk about joy, and he'll talk about purpose, and he'll talk about hope in this next section as it unfolds. More than that, he says, beginning verse 3. And I don't mean to reduce Paul to a late-night infomercial, but you've heard this language before, haven't you? That, that, that you're watching and then the salesman has made his great pitch as, as fantastic as it is, but wait, there's more. And if you'll just keep watching, I will show you how much better this product can be and how much even more it will improve your life. You better hold on, it'll knock your socks off. And the gospel is the same way. It gets sweeter the longer we're in it. It gets truer, it gets more real. Truer is not a word, but it's a word. You know what I mean. As God draws us deeper into this life with Him and His Son, the gospel becomes even more of a definition for our life and draws us so close that it becomes the very steps that we take 
So this is what gospel living looks like. Having been justified and, and appreciating that we are at peace with God, what, does, what effect does that have on my life? How does that look? Well, more than that, more than God just having saved me, now here's how he continues to save me as he draws me into this life and continues to work with me. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. And this is where Paul begins to go off track, isn't it? Because that's just foolishness. Rejoice in yourself. That makes no sense, Paul. Maybe it does. I think I understand. I think I understand that the only way that you and I can rejoice in sufferings is if we can appreciate that they are not in vain. That there is a purpose in our suffering. Now, whether we believe that God causes the suffering, allows the suffering, or some degree, but that's really not the issue in this discussion tonight. But that the suffering that you and I endure, and all of us have it, and the trials and the hardships and the heartache and all of those things, that God does not let those things go unnoticed. God does not let us proceed through all of those things without care and without love and without redeeming that suffering by putting it to use. Paul will say later in chapter 8 that, 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 that the, the big picture goal for what he is accomplishing in our life is that you and I would be conformed to the image of his son. We mentioned that verse last week and talked a little bit about that. God does not let our suffering go to waste. How many of us want to be like Jesus? And Well, I, I saw like three hands go up. Good for you. And I'm going to assume that we were all raising our hands on the inside. I understand. How many of us want to go through what Jesus went through to become who Jesus is? And all of a sudden, my hand is way down here because I, I don't want but God will not let our suffering go unnoticed and without use. That would be a tragedy. Nobody likes to see their, their children suffer. This weekend we were with a family that uh, had a new, relatively new grandchild, uh, seven months old, and, and grandma and grandpa are still excited to, to show him off and and he was just being as fussy as could be. And, and he's had some, some earaches and, you know, this pain. And, and mom and dad are just pulling their hair out. And Well, I got a text as we were driving back. And I didn't answer it. I wasn't texting and driving. But, but I, did, I did glance down and read it. And she said, we know why he was so fussy. He has a tooth coming in. Nobody likes to see their kid go through the suffering, but if you and I as, as parents and having some, some perspective that the child doesn't have, does that suffering have purpose? Yes. And there's something that God will accomplish through that. So more than that, as good as it is that God has justified you, as good as it is that God sent Jesus the cross, the resurrection, baptism into Him, and as good as all that is, there's more. God is not through with us when we come up out of baptism, is He? There's more, and here's what it is, that all of the suffering that you and I suffer has purpose, and therefore we can rejoice in our sufferings, knowing something. 
knowing that suffering produces endurance. And all of a sudden, as we, we say something like endurance, suffering becomes even less palatable. Because when we suffer and we cry out to God, we say, God, fix it. That would be the answer to my prayer is, is do something. What does this text teach us? How does God work through suffering? He doesn't allow it, or how, again, however you look at that, but he doesn't redeem it. He doesn't give it purpose by just pulling us out of the fire. What did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? They stood in the fire, and they were stronger for it. They developed endurance, and they said a little bit of smoke damage won't hurt. We've been through that before. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And as far as Paul is concerned, what is the character that's built up within us? That is all of those beautiful spiritual qualities of who Jesus is. He says you will become like Jesus when you live the life that he lived. And that's what God is calling us to, and that is what he is leading us through. Christianity is no quick fix. We know that, right? It is a lifetime of of being remolded and reformed to look less like myself each day and more like Jesus who loves me with an incredible love. And this character, all this remodeling work that God is doing in my life, it produces hope. And hope is, uh, hope is one of those fantastic Bible words because it anticipates a future. And, and, and the future, whether the details are, are clear or still murky, the future that the, that, that the Bible anticipates is one that God controls. It's one that he has created. It's one that is firmly within his hands. And and I am standing here at point A, and God is all the way over there at point B, and I have no idea how he will get me through. But here's faith, isn't it? Abraham had no idea. He just knew that God was powerful enough to make it happen, and he's the example that's, that's put before us. Hope allows us to look at the future, to look at God in the future, to look at the faithfulness of God as His promises unfold and to say if God is is alive and well in the future, then I can live my today in anticipation of that future. That I will align my life today. I will take my bearings, not based on what I see and experience in the here and now, but I will key off of what the future looks like. And I know what the future will be, or at least I know who holds the future. And that is what is most important. This is God's process of refining us. Is is, is it best to say that God has saved us? Is is that true? Can we say that? God has saved us? Yes. This can be interactive. You can at least nod. God has saved us. Would it also be right to say God will save us? That there is still something to anticipate about something? Yes. Well, say we've got past, we've got future. What do we lack? Present. Friends, God is saving us. God is, is at work. 
This process of changing our lives, of of sanctification, the Bible will call it. Redemption, that's in the past. God has taken care of our sins and, and, and legally he has dealt with them through the cross of Jesus in a beautiful way. And in the future he will bring us to glory and that's sometimes called glorification. But now we are being renewed. We are being changed. We are being made holy. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Why? For for all of the questions sometimes about how much of the Holy Spirit do we have and does He work miracles and all those different things we could have, sometimes we forget to ask the basic questions about what does He do in our lives. God has given Him to us to twiddle his thumbs and, and wait for the end of time, or what? We know we have him. I think sometimes as we look at God's great promises, maybe they're summed up in, in a verse like Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for, for what? For the forgiveness of your sins. We, we know that one, and that, that's truth. That's a good place to stand. But what about the last phrase? And you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. God gives us His Spirit and He uses that description of the Holy Spirit not just to say that the Spirit Himself is holy, but He is elsewhere described as the Spirit of holiness who works inside of us for our sanctification. And when we keep in step with the Spirit, maybe using Paul's language from Galatians, what do we look like? We look more like Jesus. And this is how the Spirit works and cleans us out in our lives and makes us more like Him. God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, God is not through with you. God is still working on us. And here's His proof. For while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. He sets up a rather ridiculous scenario, but but asking the question, for whom would you give your life? Would you give your life for uh, for, for a justified person? That is a person who who can't even rightfully say innocent, but just someone who said, well, I'm not innocent, but but he paid my, my penalty and my fine. He says, no, nobody would die for somebody like that. Maybe, just maybe, on on someone's very best thoughts, they might die for the very best person that they know. So think of the very best person that you know who has blessed others' lives and been a a blessing to the community and and, and someone who who just seems to go through life and, and making everyone else's life better. Maybe, just maybe, a person might say, I would give my life for that person. But you and I are not that good person. You and I, as the text says, while we were still weak, Christ died for us who were ungodly. And so it's not that I was so good that Jesus died for me. But I am so weak, and I am so ungodly. And he'll say, 
here in a minute, he'll call us sinners. How successful would that be if you just walked up to somebody on the street and said, Hey, you, sinner! But it's not an insult here, is it? It's just a true reflection of what we had become. While we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if he would, if he would move heaven and earth as he has, if he would intervene through time and space as he has, if he would endure the suffering and the pain and the humiliation as he has, if he would do all of that for us while we were still sinners, what will he do for us now? See, before we were enemies, before we were sinners, before we were weak, before we were ungodly, who are we now? We are the church of Christ And I mean that in every biblical description of the, we are the people of God. And He loves us. And we are at peace with Him. And we belong with Him. We are the redeemed. And if He would do all that for us then, while we're weak and godly sinners, is He withholding something from us now? Or is He ever even more at our side? and helping us forward and giving us grace upon which to stand. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood much more. And see here Paul goes again. Grace, that's great that saved you. But much more is that grace continues to save you. That the stand that we take in grace is what continues to to keep us in the presence of God. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. As we look at the Gospel story, even as it's reduced to just a few thoughts in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it is what? It's the death and burial And it ends there, right? We are saved by His life just as much as we are saved by His death. If His death is what buys us from from our sins, if His death has that redeeming quality and that atoning quality and, and forgives the sins, then what does His life do? His life is where He works and intercedes for us today. We are saved by His life. And more than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. And he says, Christian, do you still struggle with sin? And we'll talk about sin. And how, although it seems to be so powerful, and and it seems to loom up against us and like, like it could control us and boss us around, he says, no, 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 no. God didn't just love you enough to send Jesus to begin with, but God has shown you his love and that Jesus still works for you and that his grace is still for you. He says in verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, so he goes back to Adam. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. 
so death spread to all men because all sin. He's, we all have responsibility for it, but he says Adam opened the door and left it wide open so that we could all go in after him. And, and yes, sin has touched every one of us. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. And he talks about how, how, how sin reigned. Verse 14, or excuse me, death reigned. Death is the result of sin. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Free gift is just another thought to say what? Grace. But the grace that God gives, the Jesus that He gives, this this plan from one end of eternity to the other, everything that God gives freely, it's not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, Many more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded for many. We catch this language. He says, you think sin was powerful. Let me show you the true eternal power. And it's found in the grace of God. Sin looks like a little weenie compared to how powerful the grace of God is. There is no comparison. And the free gift, verse 16, is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. He said for every sin there had to be a death. But let me show you what was even more powerful. One act of sacrifice. One act of love. One act of justification. And it brings life to all men who would believe in it. Who would trust in it. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And he says, you look back to the days of of Adam... And it just seems to compound with every generation or maybe every year or maybe you and I see it every day that sin just seems to grow more more sinful, more powerful, darker and more sinister. He says, as as big and bad as sin looks, let me show you the true power. If because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. What's more powerful? The sin that so easily entangles or the grace of God? Which is more powerful? And do you and I believe that? We lose, not when we sin. Sin is tragic. Not giving any out for that. But you and I lose when we give up on God and His good promises. We lose when we give up on appreciating God's faithfulness to forgive us. We lose when the cross of Jesus in our minds becomes powerless to forgive us and we shrug our shoulders and we say sin doesn't matter. Friends, if if sin doesn't matter, we can just sin. Then the cross doesn't really matter either. Because it was the price that was paid for sin. The free gift of righteousness causes those 
who enjoy that blessing to reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And it's interesting that he doesn't say based on my obedience and your obedience we will be made righteous. To whose obedience does he look? He looks back to Jesus' obedience and based on his obedience and just like Abraham and just like David and just like everybody else, his obedience and our faith, we are righteous and having been right made righteous having been justified we are at peace and having been at peace then then the door is open to live a christian life where suffering we can understand that there is some purpose in suffering and that suffering leads to endurance and endurance to character and character to hope that we see that god really has a plan and really is in control and really calls us to a brighter and better future of his choosing Now the law, verse 20, law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And here's where things almost seem to to go fishy again. Paul, are you really saying what it sounds like you're saying? Because let's break it down. Where sin increased, the more that I have sinned, what else increases? The grace of God. And, and, and God is not stingy with His grace, is He? Well, what word does it use? It abounds. That, that gives us every indication of, of the richness and the depth of God's grace. He doesn't give us just enough. It's not by the skin of our teeth or with God looking down at us and shaking His finger that He saves us and forgives us of the things that we continue to do, even this side of, of, of our own conversion, our own new, new birth into Christ. But He says, where you have sinned, grace abounds all the more. And you say, now wait a second, preacher. Are you saying that we can just keep sinning and God keeps forgiving? Yes. And not, not in a way of giving license to sin. In fact, doesn't Paul anticipate somebody running with this and going the wrong way? Isn't that where he goes in chapter 6? He's saying, not that I'm saying you and I should give ourselves over to sin just because God will forgive them. But he says, on the other hand, you and I should have confidence in the sacrifice of Jesus that leads to justification, that leads to peace, that leads to understanding our Christian life, the hope and the character that is built in Jesus. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death and seemed to have all the power, that when sin said, you are dead because of your sin, and you are dead because of your sin, as powerful as, as sin and death seem, the text says, so grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, you and I take our stand in the grace of God, and there is no better foundation. There is nothing more amazing, we might say, 
than God's grace. Because that is where he saved us. It's where he is saving us. And it's how he will save us in the future as he brings it all to a close. And you and I have nothing to, to doubt and no reason to hold back as we walk each day with him. So tonight, we ask the same question. Where do you take your stand? Before God, how do we plead? Do we say, but God, I've been to church every time the doors were open. You're the Sunday night crowd on, on a cold winter night. But is that what we plead? No. It's not that I sang the best, that I went to all the church services, that I gave this much or I did this and went on this mission trip. I take my stand on God's grace because that is the only place in which to stand. So what can, well, what can you say? Hopefully it's always I stand in the grace of God. If tonight you need to plant your feet more solidly in that grace, completely giving yourself over to it. If you need to rededicate your life or to take one step towards God from where you are right now, then we invite you to do that as we stand and as we sing.